The following is a sermon from the church at Cherrydale in Greenville, South Carolina. To learn more, visit us at tccherrydale.com. Bibles, Romans 9 and 10 will be our text this morning. We have a fun topic. What about those who've never heard the news of Jesus? And um, we're going to try to cram 80 minutes of content into about half that time and uh, untangle a web of questions. So what's getting ready to happen is either going to be extremely fun or edifying or a tragic train wreck. Either way, it's going to be good for you. It might be painful for me, but you're going to have fun uh, in what we're, we're getting ready to walk through. Here's my goal. What's the win of this sermon? Here's the win. I want heads smoking and hearts stirred. Heads smoking and hearts stirred. If we get one of those without the other, I've failed this morning. So if we just get heads smoking and we don't get hearts stirred, I've dropped the ball. If we just get hearts stirred but we don't have heads smoking, I've dropped the ball. So the greatest compliment you can give me after this is, Matt, you hit both of those, all right? My head's smoking, I got some things to think about, and my heart is stirred for the work that God is doing around the world. Uh, what we're doing is kind of packaging together uh, three content blocks that, that fit as a unit. We've done two of those already in the previous two weeks. Do one this week. What about uh, uh, the problem of evil? How do we understand suffering in the world? Last week, what, how, how do we piece that together with an understanding of hell, God's eternal judgment? And this week, kind of the natural outcome of that progression. Okay, so what about people who've never heard the, the good news of Jesus? We're going to try to package those together uh, as a text unit. I want to serve you uh, and, and let you know next week, we're going to kind of begin to bend our way back into some more practical subjects in terms of uh, specific cultural realities. Next week, we'll consider in some ways a continuation of this, the notion of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. How do those fit together? And then we're going to begin um, some real street level uh, issues. One of those in two weeks is going to revolve around the issue of human sexuality. And so parents, I want to prime you for that. Um, what we're going to do is provide an opportunity for you to uh, excuse your kids to an age-appropriate time of teaching during that sermon. And what we're saying is we, we want to kind of put this in your lap to make really good decisions. What we don't want to do is say something further or faster than you're ready to say as a parent and get you a really awkward van ride on the way home, okay? Um, but what we do want to do is to serve you uh, as you're having these conversations and perhaps needing to have these conversations a little bit earlier than maybe you're, uh, you're having them to say, we're, we're going to talk about issues of human sexuality. We're going to do it, hopefully, in a way you know us. We're going to do it in a way that's uh, gentle and kind. We're not trying to be provocative for provocative sake. But we are going to have some age-appropriate teaching for children during that hour. Uh, so you can kind of get your, your mind around, hey, is this something, wh which of our kids do we want to be a part, which do we want to excuse? More information on that to follow. So the progression of topics, though, for us this week is uh, what about evil, what about hell, what about those who've never heard? And in a very real way, this progression, these questions are kind of a logical outcome. It's a very similar uh, style of logical question asking that Paul gets to in places like Romans 6, when he's just made this, uh, these big truth claims that salvation is by grace alone, that it's God's grace that saves. And then he asks kind of the rhetorical question in Romans 6, 1, well, then should we continue to sin so that grace might abound? Like that's a logical question that follows from a high understanding of the gospel. Well, this week, we've got a very similar logical progression question. If all the world is fractured and broken, uh, everything is totally busted, and as a result, we are under the just condemnation of God, and there are real people who will spend eternally judged by God for their sins, separated from him, the logical question is, well, what about the, the billions of people who are living or have lived who've never heard of Jesus? This is a good question, and I want to take a run at it this morning. What I want you to do as we, as we head into the text, I want you to picture this morning as a big seesaw. You know how seesaws work. You put some weight on one side of the seesaw, and it elevates something on the other side. So what I'm going to try to do is spend about half our time stacking weight on one side of the seesaw from the text. 
And then what we're going to say is then what necessarily rises up if these things are true? So if this weighs on us, what necessarily has to come out? And for our purposes this morning, you might picture this like the hefty middle-aged parent sitting on one side of the seesaw with his four-year-old kid on the other side. Okay, it's going to be some hefty weight stacked on that's not just going to rise these things like little by little out of our lives, but if they're actually true, it like thrusts them out. Like, this, I have to do these things. I can't not uh, do them. So on the truth side of the seesaw, we're skipping a really big stone in the book of Romans and turning our attention to Romans 10. We've been in Romans 1 and 2 Uh, Up to this point, this week, we're going to move to Romans 9 and 10 specifically. And at risk of huge oversimplification, hopefully the slides will help you this morning. I've got more slides this morning than is normal for me. But hopefully they'll frame some of your note-taking. We can see the book of Romans really in four major divisions. Again, this is a huge oversimplification, but at least it helps us get the picture of the book in our head. Chapters 1 through 3, asking the question, what's wrong in the world? Why are things so busted and broken? Chapters three and a half, really, through chapter eight, saying, hey, what did God do to make things right? And specifically, what did he do through the person of Jesus to make things right? Chapters nine through 11, asking the question, well, who has access to what God has done through Jesus? And then chapters 12 through 16, saying, okay, what does the life look like for those who respond to this work? So what's wrong? What did God do to make it right? Who has access to that? And then what kind of seesaw, what springs out of our lives as a result? The unit this morning that we're considering beginning in Romans 9 verse 30 and going through 10, 21 is specifically zeroed in on that question. Who has access to the message of Jesus? And the unit starts and ends with a really stunning reversal. Paul says Gentiles who did not have access to all the advantages of God's people, the nation of Israel, they're actually stepping into this salvation. But many in Israel are rejecting it. And once again, God's just judgment is seen and his holiness is vindicated in his judgment of Israel's sin, even though they should have been the the first people to respond to the good news of Jesus. So in Romans 9 and Romans 10, Paul says, but, but none of this ultimately escapes God's redemptive plan. He's not asleep at the wheel. In Romans 9, the emphasis or maybe the door into the house of the conversation is on divine initiative. The divine sovereignty in this act. He says that Israel's rejection is purposed by God. It's part of his redemptive plan. In Romans 10, the emphasis or the door into the house is on our human response. What is the human response based on God's sovereignty? Here in Romans 9 and 10, he pits two ideas that are really difficult for modern hearers to make sense of side by side. And in my estimation, this should be highly instructive for us. These two issues, divine sovereignty and human responsibility, are pitted as divine friends, not foes. Each working together to explain God's great plan to save sinners and fix the world. And our theological formulations, the way that we speak of these things, has to make room for this tension. To appreciate the fact, as the prophet Isaiah says, my thoughts, speaking of God, are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So there is, in a way that will never suck out, divine mystery to how these two realities coincide. And the only way... We know true truth is through the revealed truth that God has given us through the scriptures. And so we have to be really careful about attempting to develop theological formulations that take tension out of what God has left in. 
This paragraph that we're going to consider this morning is dead in the middle of this discussion of the nation of Israel. Is God at fault in saving Gentiles? And Paul answers, no. In fact, God has been gracious to Israel, and the benefits that they've received are solely attributable to divine favor. One commentator writes, the choice of one deserving man over another deserving man would have been favoritism. But when we see that two were equally undeserving, the whole picture becomes different. God determined for causes that are found in him and have not been revealed to us to show favor to those whom he pleased. Jacob, not Esau, Isaac, not Ishmael. This is attributed to God's divine counsel and wisdom. And yet, look at the beginning of Romans 10. Paul still longs for these people who he's just said have rejected overwhelmingly the offer of salvation through Christ. He still longs, he writes, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they would be saved. So he can, in one breath, trust in God's initiative and have deep zeal that all people would be saved. And then, in really good news fashion, he writes in verse 13, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Both Israel and now Gentiles, he's quoting the Old Testament prophet Joel, so showing that God's plan has always been to save the Gentiles. And he's saying everyone can respond, although God's redemptive plan was worked out in history through one particular race, it was meant from the beginning for the benefit of all peoples. So we have pitted next to one another a radically inclusive claim. Any can come. And a radically exclusive claim. But only through Jesus. Okay? These are pitted next to you. So it's radically inclusive. Great news for all people. Anyone can come, but it's radically exclusive. The only path is through Jesus, which leads to a series of rhetorical questions that are asked in Romans 10, 14 through 17. Let's stack some weight on one side of the seesaw, beginning in verse 14. How then? Can they call on him they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news, but not all obey the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? So faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the message about Christ. Four plates of truth, four weights to stack on one side of the seesaw first. In order to call, they have to believe. In order to call, they have to believe. He's built the case throughout this book that all people are cut off from saving faith. And here he says explicitly that their only hope is belief found in Jesus. This is the God-ordained path of salvation. Look back in Romans 10, 9, a verse that many of you memorized as, as children. We see this fundamental act of repentance and confession in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the God-ordained means of salvation, which helps us understand perhaps a question of the outside. Well, what about the innocent person in the bush? Roman Paul in Romans has already made the case there is no innocent person in the bush. That we, because of our sinful rejection of creator and choice of creation, have all rejected God. Romans 3, 10 and 11. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. As a result, all people are guilty. And this fundamental starting point of human brokenness and depravity is the place we have to begin to get to the biblical conclusions of this question. If we picture salvation as an orphanage with a whole bunch of kids saying, pick me, pick me, pick me, 
This whole thing falls flat. But if we picture the whole of creation as having rejected God, turned from him, chosen creation over creator, then what we see in salvation is sheer grace. But there's only one hope for those who have rejected. It is belief in Jesus. They, they have to believe. And this belief, though maybe in some infant form, must be fostered in the hearts of those who are genuinely saved. Confession of sin, understanding of need, belief in Jesus' work. And here their salvation is attributed to calling on him, on Christ. Not vague belief in an ill-defined deity, not moral uprightness, but salvation through belief in Christ. Salvation through one man. Jesus is not a tribal deity. He is the one true and living God of all people. As Paul writes in 1 Timothy, there's one mediator between God and man. The man, Jesus Christ. Redemption through Christ Jesus is the singular solution for the universal problem of human sin. Salvation through Christ Jesus is the singular solution for the universal problem of human sin. First weight plate on one side of the seesaw. Then he adds another plate. Two. In order to believe that, they have to hear. They, they have to hear. What God has done through Jesus must be clearly declared to them. It must be defined. Now step back for a second. This makes sense, doesn't it? So in general revelation and creation itself, you might stumble upon certain facts about God, right? You might stumble upon the fact that a God exists. You might uh, stumble on the upon the fact of uh, some order in the cosmos. You might even, from this moral conscience that we have, stumble on the fact of rightness and wrongness in society. But you never stumble your way to Jesus. You can't get there without someone declaring the message of Jesus to you. You have to hear it. It's not something that you can intuit out on your own. Even the wise, Paul says, can't get there on their own. Consider this from 1 Corinthians 1. Since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through what? Through the folly of what is preached. To save those who believe. For there to be saving faith, people must know of Christ. John Piper writes, apart from knowledge of him, no one who has the ability to know can be saved. There he's leaving room for disability. He's leaving room for children who die in infancy. No one who has the ability to know can be saved apart from hearing and understanding the message of Jesus. Famous quote or story attributed to the salvation experience of Helen Keller helps with this. Uh, I read, she recorded that there came a time when Miss Sullivan, uh, being a very godly woman and wonderful Christian, wanted to import to her some truth about God. So Miss Sullivan went to Dr. Philip Brooks and asked him to come and tell Miss Keller about God. As Dr. Brooks sat there, he talked to Miss Sullivan and she translated the words to Helen Keller through the finger pressures that she used for communication. As she got access to ideas about God, suddenly a light broke out on Miss Keller's face and she answered back in this way. Oh, I know him. I've known him for a long, long time. I just didn't know what to call him. Okay, Th This helps us. So while we might intuit certain things about God, there is a God, there is a divine being, there's order to creation. In order to call out to God for salvation through Christ, we must know of Jesus. That must be heard clearly. Then third weight plate on the other side of the seesaw. If we're going to hear, someone has to preach. Hearing necessitates a human. I know that seems overly simplified, but I think this is the point that Paul's writing. Hearing necessitates a human. 
Can you be saved by Jesus without knowing of Jesus? It doesn't seem like the Bible leaves room for that. From the teachings of Scripture, we see clearly that in order for someone to be saved by Jesus, they must know of Jesus. And in order to know of Jesus, someone has to tell them the message about Jesus. Those of you who are familiar with your Bibles may say the, the objection would commonly be, well, Matt, but Matt, what about Cornelius? It's a classic case. Turn back to Acts 10 if you've got your Bibles open. Acts 10, I'll put the passage on the screen for you. Acts 10 would be the classical illustration of this point. The conversion story of uh, one called by Luke a devout man, Cornelius. In Acts 10, the story continues all the way to Acts 11, but we'll just read a snippet here. In Acts 10, verses 1 through 3, Luke records this. There's a certain man called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people and he prayed to God always. And about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid, and he said, What is it, Lord? So he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. And then now send for Peter, and he will tell you what you must do. So here we see one who's called devout, who's offering sacrifices to God, who is denoted as being righteous in some means of that word. And yet, notice what Luke records must happen in Acts 10. God not only is clearly at work stirring the heart of Cornelius to the truth of the good news, but what, is, what happens here? God not only does that, but he ordains the means. In Acts 11, he comes to Peter, and we, we see in verses 13 and 14, Cornelius told us how he'd seen an angel standing before his house who said to him, send for Peter, who will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. So the clear implication from this is that Cornelius is not saved. God ordains means by which a human instrument comes, declares words to him by which he and his household will be saved saved. God ordained the means by which this one who had not heard the truth of Jesus could have that truth declared to them. And interestingly, in this passage, uh, it's not even the angel that declares those words. Right? If we're thinking like, what's the direct line from point A to point B? It would seem as if Cornelius has a vision. He sees an angel. This divine being just tells him. That's not what, what happens. He appoints a human who follows this divine initiative to declare words to Cornelius by which he would be saved. This is God's pattern throughout the scriptures. Think of the story of Moses. I use this often. Could God have delivered the Israelites without using Moses? Clearly the answer is yes. So why in this story we see God's means of accomplishing his purposes funnel through human, frail human, read Exodus 3, frail human instruments. This is his means of getting what he wants. You're hearing this story, and perhaps you're back in our text, uh, the, main, the wait number three, in order to hear someone has to preach, and you're like, yes, this is awesome. Yes, a human has to do it, but I'm out, bro, because that Bible says, preacher, and I'm not one of them. Not so fast, my friends. Unfortunately, our American ears hear that and they think of what I am doing today, right now. And that is demonstrative of the act of preaching, but it is not all of the act of preaching. This world here simply means a herald. One who has good news message to declare to someone else. Someone who speaks a message specifically a message of deliverance and hope and joy. He's quoting from the prophet Isaiah, who's using this herald imagery uh, to say people who are coming back to declare to the Israelites that they would be freed from captivity. You're coming bringing good news, and you're declaring it to people. Okay? If, uh, if you want to know whether this lands on me 
or lands on us, we can read 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. And what you're going to find there, that all who've been reconciled to God receive the message of reconciliation. We're God's ambassadors making his appeal through us. So our preaching, our telling, our sharing, anytime we're communicating good news messages, this is, this is us. We're stepping into this story. And Cornelius here, I'm going to read two quotes that I think are really helpful to me. They're extended quotes. This is where it could be a train wreck or it could be helpful. I want you to hang with me. Cornelius helps us, as Kent Hughes in his commentary on Romans writes, because he represents a kind of unsaved person among an unreached people group who is seeking God in an extraordinary way. And Peter is saying God accepts this search as genuine and works wonders to bring that person the gospel of Jesus Christ the way he did through the visions of Peter in the housetop and Cornelius in the hour of prayer. Or said another way, those who are quickened by the Holy Spirit to respond to the message will be saved by divine means that make it possible for them to hear the good news of Jesus and respond. The intersection of this tension, they're quickened by the Spirit, and the Cornelius story helps us see that the means that God has ordained are human messengers who would go and tell. God's stirring, he's stirring them, he's stirring us, and the intersection of that is the means by which he is accomplishing this message. Such stories told in Don Richardson's book, Eternity in Their Hearts, fascinatingly capture story after story of people in the bush stirred to respond to a book, visions and dreams of Jesus at just the time that someone shows up and declares to them this message. This is the sovereign work of our great God. Last week, in order to preach, uh, in order for someone to preach, they have to be sent. There's no such thing as a self-appointed herald. Heralds get commissioned to go tell something. So we have divine commission. Matthew 28, Acts 1, 8, 2 Corinthians 5 that I've already referenced. We're commissioned by an authority to go and tell, to be sent. And he hammers home this point in really kind of gross imagery. The beautiful feet of those who bring good news. He selects the most grotesque part of the body, particularly in first century travel, and says that those who are bringing this message are beautiful because, not, not because they go, but because of the message that they bring. So here's the continuum. Here's God's plan from Romans 10. People are sent, they preach, people hear, they believe, they call, and they are saved. People are sent, they preach, they hear, they believe, call, and they're saved. In some ways, you could draw a line between number three and four and say Romans 9 is focusing our attention on those latter three. Romans 10 is focusing our attention on the first three. This intersection, glimpse into God's redemptive plan. He will accomplish his mission. How? Through us. William Carey famously recounts the story I'm attempting to convince leaders of the church to go into all the world and make disciples. Can you imagine trying to convince church leaders that this matters? At one meeting, an older pastor interrupted Carrie's passion, please, and said, young man, sit down. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do it without your aid or mine. The pastor needed to read Romans 10. This is not the way that God works. His sovereign purposes are accomplished through human instruments who act to declare this message. And so what then gets pressed out of us? If this is true, if it is true that this progression in order to call, they've got to believe. If they're going to believe, they've got to hear. If they're going to hear, somebody has to preach. And if somebody has to preach, they have to be sent. What then? Hefty, middle-aged man, two-year-old kid. That's sitting on you. What gets 
thrust out on the other side. I'll give you five. I think these are non-negotiables. If you agree with those premises, these are non-negotiables. First, what has to get pressed out of you is prayer. It it has to. It is impossible. If that is happening, we have to be people of prayer. This reality has to be on our minds. Look at the page that you're sitting on. I intentionally, you're, you're all griping. I saw it in your eyes. Like, what kind of dummy type this page? The font's too small. I can't see it. Can't even read a single word. Friends, that's the point. The point is that's got to press on you. That can't be okay. Consider joshuaproject.net. I'll post some of this online this week. If you don't take access or take advantage of some of the resources that are out there by which we can know the needs of the world and know how to pray. There are at present 4.5 billion people on our planet cut off from saving faith in Jesus. Half of those have little access to the gospel. Right now there are some 6,500 Unreached people groups, more than 10,000 people united by common language with no gospel witness. Some 3,000 of those 6,000 have never been engaged with the message of the gospel. If you lined up all the people who are unreached on our planet right now, the single file line would circle the earth 25 times. Friends, this has to press on us. Not on our watch can those things continue to be true. What do we pray for? We pray that that God would show himself to these people. We pray for visions, for dreams, for supernatural means by which the Bible would come to them. Messengers would go and we pray for those laborers. That God would raise up people to get to these people around the world. Secondly, what, has, what gets thrust out are preaching, teaching, sharing. Preaching, we've got to communicate the message. If their salvation hinges on, as much as it depends on me, again, Romans 10 perspective, the door we're taking into this house, I've got to be committed to the word of God, to declaring the message of Jesus. This has to be the focus of what we do as the church gathers, not Uh, parading self-help themes as truth, but we've got to be ridiculously committed to the word of God. We've got to know it. We've got to own it. We've got to be able to tell others using the truth of scripture so that our message is clearly pointing them to the only hope they have for salvation. Thirdly, and you know where I'm going with this, you kind of see it's like the movie that you know, you, this, this is rom-com, you know, you kind of, they're going to get together in the end. You know where I'm getting ready to press you. We've got to go. We have to be people. There has to be. There have to be people leaving here regularly. If this is true, right now I was looking this morning. Uh, Two hundred and five million Christians uh, purported in the in the U.S. Do just some simple math on those stats. That means there are thirty thousand Christians in the U.S. per people group. It's never. One out of 30,000 who are willing to go. Now you say, yeah, yeah, but Matt, man, not not all those 30K are legit Christians. Okay, how many thousand do you need to get a person who would be willing to go? Let's just say that number were 1,000. Cut 29,000 off. We still have 1,000 Christians And we need one to go. We have to at least seriously ask God. God, would you have me go? And then if he says yes, we have to obey. I think J.D. Gurr's question here is incredibly insightful and helpful. Do you ever think that maybe God is stirring some of you up at this moment, precisely because he is stirring up a Cornelius over there. Right? That weigh on you. I think this is the right frame. We say, 
What about those who've never heard? I think God's answer to that question is, then let's go. I don't think Paul leaves us a lot of room for philosophical trivialities that don't press the seesaw out to a life of global mission. Will you at least ask this afternoon? At least ask. Retiree, there's money in the bank, near your grandbabies. Will you at least ask if God would have you leverage that fourth quarter of your life to see to it that some unreached peoples around the world have access to the gospel? Young families starting up on the train to, to elevating your career and your vocation, would you at least ask if, if God's purposes would be for you to raise a family somewhere else? College student, recent grad, get a job anywhere, do anything, you feel like you got your whole life ahead of you, would you at least ask if God's purposes would be for you to leverage his gifts somewhere way far away from here for the sake of those who've never heard. The fourth thing I think gets pressed out of the seesaw is in our sending. We've, we've, got, we've got to send. This, this has to become the mark of success for the North American church. Not, not how many people showed up at your deal, not, not how many services you're running, but how many people are you sending? Here the math is a little bit easier. Let's just use our tribe. 46,000 Great Commission Baptist churches in North America. That's seven churches per unreached people group. Seven churches. Whole churches. What if seven churches got together and said, what could we do with all our resources, with all our people, with all our energy, with all our great teaching? What could we do to, within our lifetime, see to it that every unreached people group had access to the message of the gospel? One of my friends at the International Mission Board uh, tells the story of a pastor coming to him and saying, hey, uh, we want to, to, to reach a people around the world, but uh, our church is very poised for mission, and we need to reach some, some easier-to-access people. And his answer was, friend, all the easier-to-access people have already been accessed. What it's going to take is some churches and some leaders who are willing to say, we're going to do the hard sledding to get the gospel to some really hard places. And what if, what if seven churches said we can run after that? Last one is in our serving. Serving is probably a bad term here because I think the specific thing I want to press us on is the theme of Bible translation. When we hear the story in Romans 10 or the, the theme, uh, faith comes by hearing First century world, hearing is the, the only means by which they're learning of the gospel of Jesus. It's not really able to write broadly to culture like hear and read. But think about what's happened in the generation since. Friends like Gutenberg and the Wright brothers and even old Steve Jobs have made it possible for us to get the truth of Jesus to crevices of the world that previously were unheard of. Illuminations Bible, again, I'll post this link later. Uh, the founders of Hobby Lobby, working with some other agencies around the world, have said, what would it take for us to get the scriptures translated in the 3,847 languages where there's little to no scripture right now? And they believe, based on uh, the, the teams they have in place, that we could be the first generation that said, by 2023, that there is a copy of the scriptures in every language around the world. We can be a part of that work. Because one of the things we're going to do in our Luke teaching series, we're going to collect an offering through that series to have the gospel of Luke translated into a language that currently doesn't have the gospel of Luke know anything about that gospel, it's a precursor to being able to translate the Jesus video film uh, that is around the world uh, showing people the truth. Of, so they get Luke and they get the Jesus film and we're able to. So, 
So what I want to press us is that in our intake, we're also saying, how can I distribute this? By God's grace, history recounts stories of living illustrations of this seesaw theme. Cold winter morning, roughly 175 years ago, these two sat in a room with a few other seminary students petitioning church leaders to let them go and reach the unreached. In fact, it was the first time that Adoniam and Anne had actually met in person. And if you're a college student or thinking about meeting and uh, marrying a fine young lady, he met and within a month had convinced himself that this was the girl he was going to marry. And so within a month of meeting her, he asked for her hand in marriage and she said, you have to ask my dad. To which he wrote this letter. Deacon Hazelden, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her submission to the toil and hardships of missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, to persecution, insult, and perhaps violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her, and you for the sake of the perishing immortal souls around the world. Can you consent to all this in the hope of soon meeting your daughter in the realm of glory with the crown of righteousness, brightened with the acclamations of praise that will redound to her Savior from heathen saved through her means from eternal despair? How's that for a proposition? He said... Leave it to my daughter. This seems fitting. They were married and set out on a 114-day ship journey to India. 114 days. We're doing it in two plane trips now. Setting their sights ultimately on Burma, a land that, at least at that point, had no gospel witness. When they got to India... After burying their first child at sea, they were told that they could not get to Burma. It was barbaric. There was no toleration for missionaries. Every missionary who had gone previously had died or left. And Anne wrote, why should we be unwilling to part with a few fleeting comforts to make us shares with them in joys as durable as eternity? They found a boat, bribed their way on board, and arrived in Burma, a land filled with poverty, chaos, and Buddhist temples. They started learning the language and translating the Bible. And in the process of this, found out they were pregnant with their second son. Born to them, Roger, his first six months of life were a joy. He was the only white kid there in Burma and was the hit of the town. But at six months, Roger developed unending fevers and one night stopped breathing. Six years later, six years later, the first Burmese person is baptized at the hands of the Judsons. Almost concurrent with this baptism, Anne becomes sick. And Adonai sends her back to America to recover. She's gone from her husband for two years. During this time, the British invaded, and every American who was there suspected of being a spy. Adonai is consigned to what is then called the death prison, where he sat in a windowless room, 30 by 40, with 50 other passengers tied each evening to a pole, and forced to sleep with only their shoulders and head touching the floor. This is how he spent 11 months. One commentator on the scene, speaking of their ultimate release 11 months later, wrote, no one who'd known them when they entered could have recognized them when they left. They could scarcely hobble. During this time, Adoniam and Anne had another baby. was born while he was in prison and she back in the States. 
he got word through a letter that came to him sealed and black. Knowing trouble was on the way, he opened and read the first sentence of the letter. Adoniam, Miss Judson is no more. Anne had not recovered. His wife had actually been buried one month before he even knew she was dead. Thus set off a life of struggle and faith. History recounts, I don't know, I'm digging a grave and sitting in it. And in that spot, God meets him, slowly begins to restore his faith and catalyze his mission. Nine years after Anne's death, they baptized 18 converts. In year 10, 217 people were baptized. In the following year, 126 more. Seven years after Anne's death, a translation of the Bible was complete in that language. After remarrying and continuing the work, Adoniam gets sick and tries to leave, though he knows that recovery is going to be slim. He writes in his journal, I feel as if I'm only beginning to be prepared for uselessness. But when Christ comes to get me, I shall go to him with all the gladness of a boy bounding home from school. And then he reads these words written in Anne's journal on the brink of her departure. I have at length come to the conclusion that if nothing in providence appears to prevent, I must spend my days in a heathen land. I am a creature of God. And he has an undoubted right to do with me whatever seems good in his sight. I rejoice that I am in his hands, that he is everywhere present and he can protect me in one place as well as he can in another. He has my heart in his hands. And when I'm called to face danger, to pass through the scenes of terror and distress, he can inspire me with fortitude. And enable me to trust in him. Jesus is faithful. His promises are precious. Were it not for these considerations, I should with my present prospects sink deep into despair. Especially because no female has, to my knowledge, ever left the shores of America to spend her life among the heathen. Nor do I know yet that I shall have a single female companion. But whether I spend my days in India or America, I desire to spend them in service of God and be prepared to spend eternity in his presence. Would you pray? We'll just take a moment to let the weight of the seesaw press up on you in significant ways, I hope. And after a few moments of silent reflection, I'll lead us in prayer and then we'll stand and sing to the God who has saved us. Father, in a very real way, we ask that you would shorten these lists that we hold in our hands. 
we, we, we know the promise of your word tells us that every name on that list is going to have representatives around the throne declaring that Christ is worthy of all praise. That means the side of eternity you're going to use human instruments. You're going to use your church to get to the message of Jesus to them. And we cannot step out from under that weight. So would you let it sit on us today? Would you cause this list to show up at the most inopportune moments? Would it challenge us? Would, would we be forced to ask, is there, is there more that I can do? Would, would you use your people all the world how great Jesus is. We're going to do it now in song to you. We, we recognize that you receive this because of Christ's work. And as these words come out of our mouths and echo off these walls, pray that they would echo back into our hearts in a way that, that convicts us that, that right now 6,634 6, People, they can't sing these praises. They don't, they don't even know. Would you please do something about that reality? And do it through us, we pray for Christ's sake.